Today we have the joy of beginning 1 Timothy. And to start our time, I want to talk to you about marriage. Human marriage was instituted by God so that man could have a helper and a companion and so that a woman could have a provider and a friend. It's a mysterious union which defies description in in many ways. It's the union called by the Apostle Peter the grace of life. But as you know, human marriage serves a function far beyond simply being a help to humanity. It serves as a living portrait, as an explanation of God's relationship with his people. The Old Testament pictures God's relationship with national Israel as a marriage. And of course, the New Testament pictures the relationship of Christ and the church as a marriage. The congregation of Christ as a wedding, as it were. But marriage doesn't just picture our current relationship with God, doesn't just picture our current relationship between Christ and the church. It also pictures a future, that there is a a future consummation. The church is the bride of Christ, and yet the actual union of the whole church and of Christ hasn't occurred yet. It hasn't happened. We, the bride of Christ, we haven't met the bridegroom face to face. We have faith in him. We know he is there. We know we will meet him, but we've never seen him. And so there will be a future day in heaven and perhaps continued on earth when Christ returns, when all the believers in Christ are gathered together for this formalized union. And we read about this in Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Now, I want to focus in on that. The bride has made herself ready. The bride, the church, is in preparation. We're being conformed to the image of the Son, Romans 8, 29. That's our job right now. The bride is still being prepared. We're still getting dressed, so to speak. Listen, no bride on earth just rolls out of bed and shows up bedraggled to her own wedding, right? The brides begin getting dressed at 2.30 in the morning for a wedding that takes place at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Because there's time, there's preparation. That's where the church is right now. We're in the process of being made ready. In fact, Ephesians 5.27 says that Christ will, quote, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so as such, as a believer in Christ, your view of the church, your understanding of the church is very much parallel to your understanding of Christ himself. Those two kind of go hand in hand. In other words, if you have a casual or a nonchalant or a cavalier view of the church, in all likelihood, that will be also an accurate reflection of your walk with Christ. And if you develop a reverential awe that Jesus Christ would form a community of people to be brothers and sisters, to be the family of God, to be the bride of Christ, then your walk with Christ will also reflect that reverential awe And delight that our Lord wills when it comes to his bride. And so how you view the church is very much a mirror of how you view Christ. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 1 over the coming weeks. I'd like to examine what I'm calling the beautiful bride of Christ. Or maybe we could call this the being beautified bride of Christ. And we'll let 1 Timothy 1 guide us into understanding some of the essential elements which makes the bride beautiful, which moves the church toward holiness and sanctification in preparation for that glorious marriage supper of the Lamb when all is right, when we are spotless, we are without wrinkle, and we are in splendor. Today, I'd like to examine just one of the elements which makes the bride beautiful, and that is New Testament preaching. New Testament preaching. And we'll do an element every week, and today is New Testament preaching. Now, we'll get to that in just a few minutes, but we are beginning a new book of the Bible, and so I want to help us get our bearings here just for a moment about the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written about A.D. 63 by the Apostle Paul, and it was written to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's assigned, we might call him apostolic representative to the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus are often called the pastoral epistles because they're addressed to Timothy and Titus who were fulfilling very much pastoral roles at Paul's direction. But very clearly, they're meant for the whole church. In fact, uh, each of these letters ends with grace be with you, plural, 
all of you are in Texas, y'all. It is to everybody. Paul's main purpose for Timothy in Ephesus was to do some house cleaning. Timothy was there to clean house. 1 Timothy 1.3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In other words, Timothy was to pastorally confront and correct false doctrine in the church and most likely in the leadership. The sound doctrine was not being preached and so Timothy was there to restore order to the church. He was, to put it this way, to take back the pulpit for sound doctrine How do we know that this would have been an issue? Well, the Apostle Paul had ministered in Ephesus for three years. It's the longest he was ever in one location. He had personally discipled the elders who were in this church. He grew them up. And as he was leaving for the last time, he gave them a warning. It's a a chilling warning. In Acts chapter 20, this is in the spring of A.D. 57, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. So we're six years later now, and Paul is telling Timothy to correct men that Paul knows personally. He's telling them to set them straight. And in 1 Timothy then, Paul is going to address issues pertinent to the church of Jesus Christ. Sound teaching in the truth, obviously. Church leadership, order in the church. Christian behavior in the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul opens this all-important letter of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. And he opens saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's spend just a moment looking at Paul. We talk about Paul all the time. If you've been at Grace for any amount of time, you you know something about Paul. But to put it in a nutshell, he was the well-educated Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin. He had received the finest of all Jewish educations. He was incredibly knowledgeable in the Old Testament, considered a, a master of the Scriptures. And he became the darling of the Jerusalem council, the Jerusalem leaders. In fact, he presided over the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. He headed up the charge to round up and arrest Christians. He was the guy to come against the new church of Jesus Christ. He was a terror to the church. The church feared him. But on his way to Damascus to arrest believers in Christ, a light from heaven shone around him with such intensity that he fell to the ground And he heard a voice saying to him, using his given Hebrew name, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, much to his shock, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus gave Paul instructions. Paul is now blinded by this light. He's led by his companions, who, by the way, heard the voice also. He's led by his companions into Damascus. Paul has now been humbled and humiliated that he's been persecuting the Messiah whom he believes in but didn't know it was Jesus. He's been persecuting his people. And in his humiliation, he didn't eat. He didn't drink for three days. He just sat. And then Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. His sight was restored. He was baptized by the believers in Damascus. And what did he do? First thing he did was he went to the synagogue in Damascus and began proclaiming Christ. And now all the Old Testament knowledge that he had came flowering forth when he put two and two together by the Spirit of God that the Messiah in the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. And he instantly had endless material to preach and he proclaimed Christ. Well, Paul was given a special mission by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and that was to be an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus He was to be an apostle like Peter, James, and John, and the others of the 12 who had ministered with him. Apostle simply means a sent one or a messenger, and it's used in two different senses in the Bible, in the New Testament rather. It's used, first of all, in a technical sense, and in the technical sense, apostle speaks only of the 12 who ministered with Jesus, Matthias replacing Judas, and of Paul. These are the men who carry great weight and great authority from Christ himself. And that's it. There are no more apostles in that technical sense. 
Paul says of himself here in verse 1 that he's an apostle by the command of the Savior. That's a necessary qualification. This is an office that is appointed. It is not requested. There is no verse in the Bible that says if any man aspires to the office of apostle, it is a fine work he, he aspires to do. No, they're, they're done. These are men who would receive revelation from Christ himself just as Jesus promised them in John 14, 26 that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things and he said, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now the same word, apostolos, is also used in the New Testament in a broader sense of men who are doing the work of the ministry alongside the real apostles but who don't carry the same authority as the 12 plus Paul. And so we have those two uses. Paul definitely falls into the first category, the one chosen, appointed by God to do a specific mission for a specific time. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, that Jesus appeared to him, quote, as one untimely born. And it's a word that we might even use to speak of a miscarriage. In other words, he's saying that, that I'm the oddball. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the weird one. I'm the odd man out. Of all these, in fact, he says in the very next verse that he's the least of all the apostles. He's unworthy to be called an apostle. And why does he say this? Because he persecuted the church of God. He's ashamed of this. In fact, he said that Jesus appeared to him last of all, making Paul, by the way, the final apostle. He's the last one. For the rest of the church age in which we now live, the church would depend not on the apostles, but on what? On the apostles' teaching that we have revealed in the New Testament. And this is where Paul becomes so, so very important to us. And this is where I want to focus this morning. Out of the 27 New Testament books, the Lord chose to use Paul to give us 13 of them and possibly the anonymous book of Hebrews as well because if you read the book of Hebrews, it has at least look-alike fingerprints of Paul all over it. And the preaching of the New Testament, the final revelation of God now concerning the new covenant in Christ This is now the backbone of the church. This is what the church is built on. This is the church's one foundation. And Paul serves as the perfect transitional writer to transition us from the old covenant to the new covenant. From the old covenant of Moses to the new covenant in Christ. Paul, a faithful Jew who knows and loves and has even taught the law of God in the Old Testament, yet he needed to be introduced to Messiah to bridge the gap from the Old Testament. And so Paul acts as the bridge between the covenants. He gives us the richness of understanding that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the law of God. And that God's plan for Israel is to restore them. Romans eleven twenty five. After God has saved all the Gentiles that he intends to save. And so through Paul, the Lord provides this beautiful bridge and he gives us what theologians call the Pauline epistles, the letters of Paul. They're all grouped together in your New Testament, beginning with Romans and ending with Philemon and maybe Hebrews. And now, per the promise of Christ to the apostles before his death, the written revelation of God has been completed in the New Testament And in Paul, also, we get our understanding of what you're supposed to do with this. What are you supposed to do? I walked into somebody's house once as a guest, and I saw a Bible framed on the wall. Is that what you're supposed to do with it? Well, that was my great-grandfather's. I framed it. I looked around, didn't see any other actual Bibles in the house. Are you supposed to frame it as a memento? No. What are you supposed to do with the Word of God? Paul is the one who told us. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to preach it. You're supposed to proclaim it. It is the central element of the church. There is a reason that the pulpit is in the middle and not off to the side, not in a closet. Paul was given a specific and incredibly important task under the direction of the Holy Spirit to define, to explain, and to characterize the role of New Testament preaching in the church. Now, I know we're beginning 1 Timothy. And so to introduce 1 Timothy, I want to have you turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We'll see the logic here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in 1 Corinthians, what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 is that everything, everything I'm going to be preaching in 1 Timothy hinges on Paul's view of New Testament preaching. It all hinges on that. 
And in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, we get Paul's spirit inspired explanation of New Testament preaching, of New Covenant preaching. As a matter of fact, many theologians believe, and I would agree with them, that everything else Paul teaches in all of his New Testament epistles centers and pivots on these four chapters. In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4. Because it tells us all of his assumptions. It tells us all of his spirit-inspired starting points concerning preaching the content of the New Testament. So let's walk through Paul's explanation of preaching from 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. And what I'm going to do is give you seven of Paul's principles of preaching. And a couple of notes on these. First of all, this is how we'll best understand 1 Timothy. Because as we walk through 1 Timothy, hopefully your view of what the New Testament is, is elevated, it's heightened. But the second little note here, when I'm talking about seven of Paul's principles of preaching, these aren't just principles for the preacher. Now, they function that way as well, and I've shared these with preachers in other venues, but these are principles for the hearer because this is as much about the priority of preaching in your life as it is anything else, the the power of preaching in your lives as Christians and the central focus of preaching in the church of Jesus Christ as the being beautified bride of Christ. So let's walk through these principles and and we're going to start long and they'll get faster as we go. But the first principle is this. Preaching contradicts the world. Preaching contradicts the world. And to just help set our bearings here, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 4 Follow along with me. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord." Now, what I want you to notice from those half dozen verses or so is that God is the initiator of salvation. He's the initiator of revelation. The Corinthian believers are the recipients of God's work to give them the knowledge of himself, to give them salvation from sin based on that knowledge. Just real quickly here, verse 4, this is the grace of God given you. Verse 5, you were enriched, passive verb, meaning you got something Enriched in him with all speech and knowledge, literally with all words and knowledge. Verse 6, the testimony about Christ has been confirmed among you. Verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will sustain you in the end. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Lord. In verse 9, God called them into the fellowship of his son. So God is the initiator of knowledge of God, knowledge of himself, and of salvation. And then in verses 10 through 17, Paul is going to call them to unity. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Now, here's a question. Why is it that you watch the news, for example, and nobody can agree? Well, it's very simple because there is no divine standard upon which anybody stands. So how is it that the Apostle Paul is asking the church to agree? Because there is a divine standard. There is a benchmark. There is a standard of truth. He goes on to rebuke the church for having factions based on following men. Some have aligned themselves with Paul himself. Others with Peter or Cephas. Others with Apollos, who is a great preacher of the word. Some even said, well, I follow Christ, not those men. Which is ridiculous because those men are preaching Christ. And so it's a false attempt to divide. In fact, Paul tells them something unusual. It makes our our Baptist brothers very uncomfortable. But Paul tells them, I'm glad I didn't baptize so many of you. And the reason is, is he didn't want to give them a reason to have a Paul cult following, so to speak. Instead, his job was to proclaim that which was revealed by God. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that which is revealed by God, the revelation, the revealing of God's truth, is in direct opposition, direct conflict with worldly human systems of thinking. Let me put it this way. God's truth is heavenly, it's eternal, it's perfectly wise, it's limitless, it's pure. Worldly perspective 
is earthly, it's uneternal, it's lacking in wisdom, it's limited, and it's impure. They're opposite. God's truth is meant to tear apart the world's opinions. In fact, if you did a quick little survey of just First and Second Corinthians, you would see this all over the place. I'll just give you a couple of examples. First Corinthians 1 verse 20, God made foolish the wisdom of the world. Same chapter, 27 and 28, God chose what is foolish to the world. Chapter 2, verse 5, your faith rests in the power of God, not the wisdom of men. He's setting up this dichotomy. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul's preaching imparts the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. Chapter 2, verse 12, Paul is preaching from the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. Chapter 3, verse 19, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Chapter 3, verse 20, the thoughts of the wise are futile. I originally made a chart of about 25 more of those, but it took me 10 minutes to read them. So you get the point. The wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God are at odds with one another, and the wisdom of God contradicts. So Paul's making an argument that the things of God are in absolute opposition to the so-called wisdom of the world. Now, why is this important? This is important because only from God's truth can the true nature of eternal and ultimate things be determined. You cannot get that any other way. God's truth cannot be discerned. It cannot be apprehended. It can't be figured out through any human effort. It's absolutely inaccessible without God revealing it. Chapter 1, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. 2 Corinthians 4 Paul says the gospel is veiled, it's hidden from those are perishing, who are perishing unless God shines the light of the truth of his own glory through Christ upon the heart. And 1 Corinthians 2, beginning of verse 10, tells us that only the Spirit of God knows the full truth of God. He's the only source from which humanity may understand anything that is true. Preaching contradicts the world because the world cannot, by definition, have specific knowledge of God unless God reveals that knowledge to your heart. You can't have it. I'll put it this way. If preaching is truly to be called preaching, it must contradict the world. It must. This is why those outside the church can't set the preaching agenda for the shepherds of God's people. I'm always amused when I see unbelieving politicians on TV saying, the churches should do that. Foolishness. Pastors should be doing foolishness. Well, the clergy should be, you're a fool. You have no way of knowing what the church should be doing. The world tries to set the agenda for the church, yet they don't have a clue. By the way, there's only one agenda for the church, and that is to proclaim Christ, and that's the agenda the world hates. They hate that. And so preaching must contradict the world. Paul gives a second principle of preaching. We'll call it preaching proclaims the divine. Preaching proclaims the divine. Preaching is to be from the content of revelation, not from mere human logic or eloquence. We had a guest a while back who said he went to a church where the pastor stood up with a different book that wasn't the Bible and preached a sermon from it. That's not a sermon. That's not preaching. Chapter 1, verse 17, again, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, to our English ears here in the 21st century, that little phrase, eloquent wisdom, that doesn't mean much. That just maybe means, well, I kind of know a lot. But to the original Greco-Roman audience, reading 1 Corinthians, eloquent wisdom is a bombshell of a phrase. Because this isn't just one little phrase. This is a reference to a very rich cultural history. In fact, 500 years of Greek cultural history, which included sophisticated rhetoric and public speaking. It was a way of life. It was the primary form of disseminating ideas. It was the primary form of entertainment. If a professional speaker was coming to town, everybody came to hear him. Professional public speakers were called sophists. It's from the uh, Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. But here's what's important. The sophist, his main concern was not truth. His main concern was convincing the audience of his viewpoint. In fact, sophists would have contests to see if they could persuade a crowd of something that was idiocy, something that was illogical. 
And they would have like, I don't know if it was like a reality TV show or something, but trying to persuade people of something that wasn't true using rhetoric. There was a certain social status associated with the sophists. They tended to be followed by the elites of society and Apparently, the Apostle Paul didn't measure up to them in the minds of some of the Corinthian believers. Chapter 2, verse 1, he reminds them, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's not saying that he wasn't a good public speaker, but he wasn't using human techniques to convince of godly truths. Instead of eloquent wisdom, Paul said he must, must, in verse 17 of chapter 1, preach the gospel. He must preach the content of revelation, the cross of Christ. Paul's message wasn't human, it was divine. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 4. In my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Let me stop right there. Whether plausible words of wisdom, it means to say something that kind of makes sense. He's not saying, I said things that made sense to your human ears. Not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You can't compare the gospel to human wisdom. There's no comparison. They're not even in the same universe. Chapter 1, verse 18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I have had people that I share the gospel with. One guy just shook his head and said, you're an idiot. I can't believe how well educated you are, and yet you believe this junk. It's folly to the world. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? To the spiritually blind, the cross is idiocy. It's lunacy. It goes against the grain of self-righteousness and the pride of humanity. The cross is foolishness to the lost and especially to the self-righteous because they would say, how can God be crucified? That makes no sense. A scholar by the name of Dr. Martin Hengel, he wrote a number of decades ago that to the outsider immersed in Greco-Roman religious thought, the main idea that, quote, the one pre-existent son of the one true God, the mediator at creation and the redeemer of the world, had appeared in very recent times in the -the out-of-the-way Galilee as a member of the obscure people of the Jews and even worse, had died the death of a common criminal on the cross could only be regarded as a sign of madness. Great observation. In other words, if you believe the Christian faith, you're a lunatic. That's what the world believes. You cannot compare the gospel to false worldly wisdom. There is no comparison. By the way, For the person that would arrogantly claim that the Bible is written merely by men and not the God-breathed theopneustos, God-breathed words of God himself, would you consider this? Unsaved humanity logically can't judge the Bible because they don't have the capacity to do so. And so their opinion is worthless. And also, have you ever thought about this? The Bible is not a book that any human would write if we could because it declares the humanity that humanity is sinful and wicked and depraved and hopeless and hapless and wretched and miserable and doomed who would write that and by the way the writers of scripture themselves are presented in their sinfulness and their insufficiency how would you like to write a book in which all of your sins are highlighted for the next 2,000 years or in Moses's case for 3,500 years we don't like it when our sins are remembered for two minutes the bible is not a book the humans would write if they could, and it's not a book that they could write if they would. The gospel of Christ is revelation from God. On the other hand, worldly wisdom is self-motivated, self-driven ideas with no basis in objective truth at all. It is okay when somebody who is an unbeliever begins debating the Bible with you. It is okay to say, I don't even recognize your ability to have this conversation. You need to come to faith in Christ. God cannot be known through human intuition, through logic, through intellect. Nobody has ever figured out the gospel. No one has. Paul viewed his preaching as as an assignment from Christ himself to proclaim what was divine. That was the center of his apostolic calling. 
Let me give you a third of Paul's principles of preaching. And if you forget everything else I say this morning, remember this one. Here's his third principle. Preaching dethrones the listener. Preaching dethrones the listener. Now, I want to take a moment to get to this. Preaching dethrones the listener. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, I want to talk about the word preach for a moment. This is a monumentally important word. Kerugma in Greek. And we're going to refer to that a few times. It means very specifically to proclaim as a herald. To proclaim as a herald. Keep that word herald in your mind. The Apostle Paul uses kerugma six times. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. So basically this is Paul's term for preaching. Now the big debate over the years has been this. Does kerugma refer primarily to the content of the verbal presentation? What is being said in the public speech making? Or does it refer to the presentation itself, to the form, to the style? Generally, it's been assumed by scholars that kerugma refers only to content, to the message itself, that it's only the substance of the communication. In other words, that good preaching can happen if somebody stands up here and just reads an essay to you, that that's preaching. That's been generally the assumption. But framing that question of kerugma in terms of those two choices, is it the content or is it the presentation? That's the wrong question. Obviously, kerugma is concerned with content, with the, with the message itself. We all get that. And if you look at preaching in the New Testament, there's a gravitas, there's an intensity, there's a drive behind the recorded sermons. You don't get a sense that presentation is unimportant. Uh, the Apostle Peter didn't drone on in a disinterested fashion. He said, he lifted up his voice and said, men of Judea. In other words, preaching is meant to snap your head forward to look at the truth of God. But the better question is, not is kerugma about the content or about the presentation. The better question is, how is kerugma preaching unique and separate from all other forms of communication? How is it different? Well, very simply, kerugma is not audience-centered it is God-centered. And there's a big difference. Audience-centered speeches of Paul's day, the rhetorical arts of his time, they did have a purpose. And in many ways, they could be very noble. The use of words in human persuasion had become, in many ways, you ready for this? A replacement for protests, for violence, and for coercion, and for aggression. It was thought to be better to fight with words than with swords. And that's a good thing. That's a mercy from God. In fact, the greatest societal changes in Paul's day were brought about by the use of speeches. And the minds, changing the minds of the hearers. The protesters of today, if they would simply take the time to write a couple of good speeches, they would make a lot more progress. This is the historical basis, by the way, for our concept of free speech. It comes from the sophists. It comes from this time period. And so the artful and the skillful persuasion, persuasion of the speaker was useful. But rhetoric was about shaping the ideas and the minds of the listener. And the center of this endeavor was whom? It was the persuader himself, the speaker and the skilled persuader, and this is where I, I want to make this distinction, he adjusted his content. He adjusted the message. He tweaked what he was going to say according to the audience, according to the culture, according to who he was speaking to. In other words, the message was for the purpose of persuading and pleasing the audience. What do we call public speakers today who speak in order to please the audience? We call them politicians. They change the message according to whom they talk to. You see somebody speaking out in the country to a group of farmers and he's wearing a cowboy hat. What's he doing? He's changing the message. He's not being the same. That's audience-centered. But the herald, remember that word? The herald was different. Unlike the public speakers of Paul's day, the herald was a public speaker who had an employer. He had a master, a governor, or an official. And listen carefully. The message of the herald did not belong to him. 
the message belonged to his master. And the herald was simply to be the mouthpiece of the master. The herald was not to alter the message. He must keep strictly to the words of his master. The herald was given the message by the one he represented. His assignment was simply to deliver it faithfully, unchanged, intact. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul said of his own preaching in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. We refuse to tamper with God's word. Let me put it this way. The persuader, the speech maker, the sophist was driven by results. How many people can we pack out? But the herald was driven by obedience. And the only arguments and persuasion that the herald offered was to emphasize the message of the master. Let me put it in terms we can all understand. A church which hires or calls a pastor so that he can attract a lot of people, they've hired a sophist. But the church who calls a pastor so that he can proclaim the message of his master have called a preacher. Big difference. And so in verse 20 of chapter 1, Paul says, where is the debater of this age? In other words, show me the guy who can show me the gospel through logic, through human rhetoric. Humanity can't in and of itself solve the dilemma of sin and death and being right with God. You can talk yourself blue in the face. You can have speeches. You can have debates. You can have conferences. You can have seminars. You will never solve the problem of sin until you come to Christ. It can't be solved apart from God. Salvation has to be received from God and on God's terms is revealed by God. And it can be only and solely in Christ on the basis of hearing, receiving, and believing the heralded message, the word of God concerning Christ and the gospel. Now, here it is. Told you we'd get here in a moment. Given that the herald is merely acting as a mouthpiece of the message of God, God will not accept, he will not tolerate lingering pride and self-sufficiency. He won't allow it. God has chosen to make himself known through the means that the proud find unacceptable And that is the preached and proclaimed word of God. And it's through the preached and proclaimed word of God that the proud must be debased, they must be humbled, they must be humiliated. I've referenced this before, but I think it's helpful. You ever see in Hollywood, in the movies and on TV shows, how do they always portray preachers? They portray them as idiots, right? Not as the most important people in society, which the Bible says they are. To the proud unbeliever, somebody speaking to them should pander to them. When I was younger in the ministry and somebody would say, I disagree with what you said, I used to say, well, let me, let's walk through that. Why do you disagree? Now, somebody says, I disagree with what you said. I say, so? Did you listen? Bring me a real argument. Bring me a real reason. We don't pander. Can I put it this way? I'm not preaching for You, I'm preaching for God. It is for your benefit, but it is for him. The herald of God's word does the opposite. He panders to no one. And in fact, the effect of communicating that truth is that he says what you have falsely believed is wrong and it will lead to your eternal damnation. This has been the error. This has been the heresy of the seeker-sensitive movement. What the seeker-sensitive movement has tried to do is take human wisdom and say, I agree with a lot of this, and let's move you toward godly wisdom. It never works. You know what does work? Here's your human wisdom. It will send you straight to hell. Let me give you God's wisdom, which will send you to heaven. Which one do you want? That's what works. The preached word of God is not meant to gratify the listener. Although the humble will be gratified, because if you're humble, you like being humbled. It is rather meant to dethrone the listener from the worship of self, from its proud role as the judge of preaching, the judge of the preacher. It is to dethrone the listener. Listen, kerugma is not just generic public speaking. It's the proclamation of the message of a master with a call to obey that message. And the message of the master will do a couple of things. It'll either delight the humble, delight the believer, or it will anger or humiliate the unbeliever. Steve Lawson likes to say that good preaching is meant to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. It's exactly what it ought to do. Let me give you another of Paul's principles of preaching, something to take home and to really chew on here. 
Preaching centers on the cross. Preaching centers on the cross. Chapter 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to Jews and the folly to Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Today, because of so-called social injustices and riots and government crises, the church keeps being tempted to stray from the central message. And the central message is Christ crucified. The church keeps being tempted to have the news and the media and society determine our agenda. They don't get to do that. Christ crucified, that's our agenda. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul didn't teach or preach other topics in the Word of God. This isn't saying you should just have a a weak little evangelistic sermon every Sunday. But the core message always comes back to Christ. It's always Christ. It's always Christ. And preaching anything else without Christ becomes an exercise in Christian ethics, Christian moralism. And that's when it's at its best. At worst, it becomes a misappropriation of the Word of God. I'll give you an example here. And you've all sat under preaching like this at one time or another. Let's say I decided to preach a sermon from Colossians 3.22 that instructs those under authority to obey their masters. But if we use this merely as a guide for Christian employment or Christian behavior without a central focus on the fact that being a Christian means taking up your cross, following Christ, and denying yourself for His sake, now that so-called preaching has degenerated into two-dimensional Christianity in which biblical truth is about being a good employee. Why? So I can improve my life. It ultimately comes back to being about me. Instead of obeying because you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, he is your true master. He's commanded in the very next verse, Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. And very sadly, American evangelicalism, I think, is plagued by man-centered preaching that uses, listen to this, uses the cross of Christ as a means to an end. And that end is my personal happiness, my fulfillment. I would defy anyone to find one New Testament sermon which uses the gospel as a stepping stone to personal happiness and fulfillment. Find me one. I'll save you the trouble. They don't exist. The gospel is the goal Christ is the purpose. The cross is the reason. We don't preach to bypass the cross. We preach to arrive at the cross. We don't preach to use the cross. We preach to cling to the cross. We don't preach the cross to be fulfilled. We preach the cross to be crucified. To be crucified with Christ. Someday, if the elders give me time, I'm going to write a book called The Lie of Christian Fulfillment. Unfortunately, somebody already wrote the book. It was a response to Joel Osteen, and they called it Your Best Life Later, which I think is a fabulous title. Listen, what is it that makes New Testament preaching unique? It is the cross. It is the cross. You might have heard in the olden days, you might have been able to hear a sermon from Jeremiah or a sermon from Hosea or a sermon from Habakkuk. Maybe Joel stood up and preached a sermon. None of them stood up and preached the cross the way the New Testament does. None of them did. It is the revelation of the means by which God's Old Testament promises of permanent salvation from sin through Messiah are consummated and completed. The cross makes now insufficient all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. He makes, it makes them in obsolete. The cross makes the imagery and the symbolism of the tabernacle and the temple and altar and sacrifice, all of that now makes sense. And the cross is the means by which the promised new covenant promised by God in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, in which God would change the hearts of his people forever. And the cross is the means that the new covenant has been launched has been inaugurated. Listen, these great men of God, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all these men, they had some information. But you know, they would be floored by a simple sermon about the cross of Christ from the New Testament. They would be blown away by that. Yes, the prophets predicted the cross. First Peter 1 tells us this. But you and I can look back at the cross historically. We can see it. We can see the blood of Christ. We can hear the nails being driven into his wrists. We can 
sense the angst of those all around him watching this crucifixion. We know the name of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. We know where he was born. We know what manner of child he was. We know the day, the day details of his three and a half year ministry. We know the exact day and time of his crucifixion. We know the exact day and time of his resurrection. We know that he is ascended into heaven to be the advocate for all who would believe on him until that day when all he has chosen have believed and he returns to earth to bring judgment to the wicked and restore and reward his people. Everything hinges on the cross. That's what New Testament preaching is. By the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. The debt for your sin was paid in full. Preaching that avoids the cross is ultimately not preaching. It's not New Testament preaching. It turns our faith into a set of rules and morals which are really more about me and less about Christ. Somebody asked me once, uh, why do you avoid preaching the New Testament? And I scratched my head. I think I've preached about a thousand sermons from the New Testament. Well, at the time I was preaching Isaiah. Why are you avoiding the New Testament? And so I gave a challenge. Go listen to any sermon I preached in Isaiah and tell me if we don't get to the New Testament. And that person, to his credit, listened to five messages and said, I I recant. Because everything goes to the cross. It all does. Let me give you a fifth principle of Paul's preaching, and this will be an uncomfortable one. Preaching shames the self-righteous. Preaching shames the self-righteous. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There were three primary dimensions in which social status was evaluated. Wisdom, those who were eloquent in thought and in speech. Power, those with great influence and command. And nobility, those with a great family history. But Paul says... Uh, that's not most of you. There weren't many of those in the Corinthian church. Why? Because God chooses what is weak to shame the strong. God uses what the world considers unimpressive so that in the end, there's no place for boasting whatsoever. All the high status people that the world prizes and panders to, and might I add, who cares what celebrities think? That Just because you can lie for a living, which is what acting is, doesn't mean that you're wise. All the high status people that the world prizes are being put to shame by a gospel. You ready for this? That's centered on the degrading of the son of God. That makes no sense to the world. In fact, James 1 beginning in verse 9 says that in Christ, the lowly are elevated and the lofty are humiliated such that we all find ourselves on our knees at Calvary. Listen, kerugma, the heralding of God's truth is meant to fulfill what, I, what Jeremiah 1.10 says that the preached word of God is supposed to do to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. And then and only then is it me- meant to build and to plant. To the self-righteous, to the one who may think God has favored him for his own merits, let me put it in ways we can understand, to the unbeliever who goes to church to hear somebody stroke his ego and pat him on the back, This is the message of divine revelation to the self-righteous. You are not righteous. You have no understanding. You have not sought after God. You are worthless because of your rebellion. You can do nothing that pleases God. You've never done anything that pleases God. You've not done one single thing to make God smile. You are a deceiver. There's death in your words. Your words are deadly. They're curses against God. They're bitter. Your deeds are murderous. And you would, in your heart, kill anyone who disagrees with you. You create ruin. You create misery. In your path is destruction. Why? Because you have not feared God. You go, man, our pastor's so mean. He's so rude. If you think that's mean-spirited, all I did was do the job of a herald and tell you what Romans 3 says about the self-righteous. 
about the unsaved, unforgiven, self-righteous person. And those words are meant to crush the spirit of the proud. And by God's grace, I've watched that happen in this room. I've watched that happen. I have seen men and women crushed by their own depravity as described in the word of God. That perhaps the proud might ask for mercy. And if he will ask for mercy, Acts 2.21 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let me give you another principle of Paul's preaching. Preaching changes the believer. Preaching changes the believer. And now we get to the positive. Preaching changes the believer. Chapter 6, or chapter 2 rather, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we impart, we do impart wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Who are the mature in verse 6? It's those who grasp things from God's viewpoint and have rejected the world's viewpoint. This wisdom is unattainable except as a gift from God. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. As it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. No, that's not a verse about heaven. That's a verse about the word of God. He continues in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Word of God was prepared for you to astound you with truth. God's wisdom is spiritual in nature. It's not dependent on human logic. We've already said this, but to emphasize verse 11, chapter 2, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That's it. Let me put it in terms we can understand. You can't even know what the person next to you is thinking. How are you going to comprehend what God is thinking? You can't. And this spiritual wisdom is given generously. It's given lavishly to all who believe in Christ. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You know how I often know that somebody has actually gotten saved? We had a young man in our church years ago who came to me on a Sunday morning. He'd been here a couple of times and he looked, his eyes were bloodshot. He looked horrible. I thought maybe he was, came in high or drunk or something. I said, what's wrong with you? He said, I've been up all night. I can't stop reading the New Testament. Why? Because for him, the Spirit of God had enlivened his heart and now the things were given freely to him and he couldn't stop drinking it in. But did you notice a little shift? Chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul's on the defensive. Paul's basic argument is that the divine truth, the preached word of God, is foolishness to the world. Chapter 2, verse 6, yet. And now, from chapter 2, verse 6 on, he proclaims the glory and the delight of Bible preaching for the believer in Christ. I don't have to sit up here and entertain you. All I have to do is give you truth. Because if you're a believer, that's what you crave. What's the difference between the one who doesn't want truth and the one who does? Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I got two emails on the same day a few years ago. One was from somebody who said, I'm leaving Grace Bible Church because I can't understand a word you're saying ever. And the other one was from somebody who said, I can't believe God brought me to Grace Bible Church because of the fountain of spiritual truth I get to drink from every, every week. What's the difference? The difference is the Spirit of God. The difference is the Spirit of God. Now, what does this change mean? It means that according to Paul here, the primary means that you become like Christ is through preaching. That's the maturing process. Verse 6, we impart wisdom. Laleo, it means to speak wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 7, we impart wisdom. Speak wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 13, we impart wisdom. We speak wisdom. It is through preaching. And, and I know there's a, there's a movement afoot now to say that you should just read your Bible. You don't need the church. How many of you would have owned a Bible in 1500? None of you. How many of you would have owned a Bible in 1600? None of you. 1700? Maybe three of you. 1800? Half of you. 1900? Most of you. 
Most of the church's history has not been focused on Bible reading, although it's great and we praise God for our copies of the Word. It's been focused on preaching, on the imparted Word of God. And that's how it changes you. I do you no favors by trying to preach in a way that does not irritate the sin inside you. I want to be a burr in your saddle. I want to be a thorn in your side. I want to be a rock in your shoe until you take it out. That's what preaching does. And then we pass the offering plate, ironically. Let me give you one more of Paul's preaching principles. Preaching tests the heart. It tests the heart. Rebellion and hard-heartedness on the part of believers blocks the maturing impact of preaching Chapter 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only only in a human way? Paul's rebuke is because of stubbornness and rebellion. He is not saying they can't understand the word because they're new in their faith. He's saying they're not understanding the word because they're in rebellion. They're being stubborn. And so what's the solution? Chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly from God. What is he saying? He's saying Be quiet and listen. Be quiet and listen. Many members of the church at Corinth grew spiritually prideful, which leads to hardening hearts, which leads to blocking the shepherding of the shepherds. And boy, does Paul rebuke their spiritual pride, their know-it-all attitudes. Chapter 4, verse 1, he reminds them that their shepherds are the servants of Christ, the stewards of the mysteries of God. They're to be faithful to that task. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells them that they aren't his judge as a preacher. They aren't his judge as a shepherd. He does not report to them. He says, I report to God. He is the one who will judge me. And then he excoriates them. He excoriates those who think they can do better without their shepherds preaching to them and leading them. He excoriates those who push back against shepherding through preaching. Chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to the sarcasm. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign. Oh, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. We talk about divine sarcasm. Boy, that's like sticking the knife in, twisting it, and doing something else horrible. He just nails them. And then he reminds them how the world treats preachers. Verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted. We're homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse, the garbage of all things. Wow, Paul, what do you really think? He doesn't hold back. But he is a shepherd, and he softens his tone for about four seconds. Chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Read between the lines, I hope you're ashamed. But to admonish you as my beloved children. But at the end of the chapter, like a good spiritual father, he gives them a choice. He intends to come back to Corinth, and here's the choice. Chapter 4, verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a, with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is not the predominant view of preaching today. Shall I come to you with a rod or a spirit of gentleness? Which do you want? I'll do either one. Preaching is for your reminder, even for your correction. The Corinthians have become puffed up in worldly values. They resembled the world more than they resembled Christ. And Paul wasn't going to stand for it. He loved them too much to allow them to wallow in their disobedience without consequences. So, you think Paul is clear about what preaching is to be? 
I think he is. His principles of New Testament preaching, it contradicts the world, proclaims the divine, dethrones the listener, centers on the cross, shames the self-righteous, changes the believer, and tests your heart. And so we are going to do our best to be perfected as the church of Jesus Christ to be presented spotless without blemish to our Savior. And if you want to do that, you must embrace New Testament preaching. It must be the center of your life as part of your preparation to be a member of the beautiful or the being beautified bride of Christ. So that's our basis for 1 Timothy 1 going all the way through that preaching is everything and the word of God must enter into your heart. It must twist, it must turn, it must clean, it must scrape, it must cut, it must divide. It must do its work until you're spotless. And that's what the word will do. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks. We give you glory for the word of God. It is endless in its delights, endless in its wisdom, endless in its capacity to make us more like Christ and yet so simple that a five-year-old can read the Bible and understand it. And so we are grateful to you for the word of God. I pray, Lord, as we enter now into 1 Timothy, that you would help us to apply all of these elements to become the beautiful bride of Christ. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.